Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This is God's word. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's ask God's blessing on his word. Oh, Father, we come to you this morning and ask that you would take this infallible, inspired passage and apply it to our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. May we walk in faith. May we be grateful for what you've done. And may Christ be glorified. In his name we pray. Amen. There's a lot of transition happening in our church. As you know, we are changing our name to Risen Savior Church. Uh, you might ask, are we still bread of life or are we risen Savior? The answer is yes. Um, we're kind of in that transitionary stage. But as we think about what God has done in our church, this plant in particular in the past four years, we've got to be grateful for his many blessings and provision on our lives and on our church's life. And as Lord willing, we move forward with independence over the next year or so, Pastor Johnny coming on board in February as a provisional pastor. And then sometime, hopefully next year or however long it takes for us to uh, vote him in. Hopefully soon, but we'll wait on the Lord on that. Once he becomes a um, full pastor with me, we are independent. And during that process, we have a lot of thinking to do regarding, well, what is our mission? What are parts of our constitution that might need updating or editing? Why are we here? Thankfully, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We're not starting something novel. We're continuing, not only in the legacy of what God has done for 2,000 years, but in the foundation that has been set before us by both Bread of Life and Christ our Hope. We share a common mission. We share common values. And it is the mission of the church that drives everything that we do. The way that we meet, the way that we sing, the way that we fellowship, the way that we pray, all revolves around that mission of the church. The church is not a social club. We are not merely here because we like the same things, like the same food, like the same sports, share the same culture. We are united together for one main reason, our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the mission of the church must always be guided by our collective faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 15 about that which is of first importance. Oh, everything in God's word is important. But there are things that are of first importance. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul identifies the gospel as that which is of first importance. And so I believe this is your heart. I believe this is the heart of your leaders. That no matter what we call ourselves, no matter what we tweak, no matter what programs we might have in the future, what outreaches we might have, or what building we might inhabit, that we would always keep the gospel 
as of first importance. We leave the gospel, we might as well call ourselves not a church anymore. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation, that makes us a church. And we must always keep that in our, the forefront of our minds. And I recognize, brothers and sisters, that many of us have, in a sense, moved beyond the basics. And we're studying theology and, and the deep things of God, and that's wonderful and edifying. But may I encourage you to never leave your first love. God in Christ, reconciling us to himself. As we were in the book of Acts for two years, we saw Paul and Peter and John, the early church, driven by this mission. Everything it seems that they ate and drink, drunk and, and, and breathed <laughs> revolved around the gospel. And this, this mission of, I've got to get the gospel out. And so today, I want to go to this classic text of Scripture. Just remind you afresh of the wonderful beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we would never grow tired of it. That we would never get bored of it. And that no matter what God does in our church, should He shrink us or grow us or move us or raise more leaders, that we would never forget that the main thing is the gospel. Sociologists refer to a a distinction between what's called mission drift and mission true. And many organizations over the years have been successful because of mission true. That is, whatever the mission was of that organization and its very founding remained throughout the generations. Whereas others drifted from their mission and became completely different than what they were to begin with. And you know this happens with churches. Just drive around a 10, 20 mile radius and you see many beautiful buildings. And trust me, as a church planter looking for buildings, I, I know where they are. And they might even use the word church on the sign. And they might even do good things for the community. Food banks and all sorts of community events, but many of them have left the most important thing, the gospel. And it would be tragic if that happened to us. You, you may know Harvard University, a world-renowned university founded in 1636. Do you know that Harvard is probably one of the most atheistic institutions in America? Originally, Harvard only hired Christian professors. Do you know the stated mission of the school when Harvard began was to instruct students to know God and Jesus Christ? Is that what comes to mind when you think of Harvard? Well, what happened? Mission drift. Brothers and sisters, may we never drift from our mission. And may Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 help us because the only hope we have to not drift from our mission is not some guilt trip or not even putting things in writing. It's that you and I believe by faith that what this says is true. And if we believe by faith that what this says is true, then we will stay on mission. So what does it say? Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 10 is an exposition of how we were made alive by grace. Remember in the book of Acts, uh, when Paul was in prison in Rome, he, um, he didn't waste any time. He wrote letters. One of the letters he wrote was to this precious church of God in Ephesus. You might remember in Acts 20, Paul spent a lot of time, a few years, in Ephesus. And so in a sense, we're, we're reading what, what Paul wrote to those beloved saints that he met in the book of Acts. And what does he want them to know? Well, in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, there's four things that I'm going to point out. The first two are on the screen. The next two will be on the next screen. But we're going to look at what we were, what God did, why God did it, and what we are now. What we were, what God did, why God did it, and what we are now. And I pray that as I give you these basic truths that many of you know, that you would be inspired by faith to follow Christ more closely, 
to worship him more deeply and to depend upon him more faithfully. Number one, what we were. Knowing where you've come from is vital to appreciating the gospel. What were we according to this text? First, we were dead in sin. Look at verse 1. Paul says right out of the gate, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. The picture that Paul is giving to the Ephesians who are now alive is to say, look at the radical change that happened in your life. You who were once dead have now been made alive. When, when Paul uses this word dead, he means dead. He means unresponsive. Not you were drowning, but you drowned. Not you were trapped in a burning building, screaming to get out, but no, you died in that burning building. You, on account of your sins, were dead. Dead. Now, what does Paul mean by that? Because he goes on to say in verse 2, in which you once walked. How could a dead person walk? Is this some sort of zombie movie here? You were dead in sins. That means that spiritually speaking, before Christ came into your life and mine, we had no desire for God. If you check our spiritual pulse, maybe our physical pulse would yield some sort of blood pressure, but our spiritual pulse was flatlined. We had no ability to please God, according to Romans 8. Our sinful inclination was to rebel against God. You and I were rebels. We just sang about that in that song. Our heart was apathetic toward God. Just like Adam and Eve, we considered the temptations of the world as more beautiful than God. That was our spiritual state. And so in our fallen state, you and I were unable to move toward God. A dead person doesn't just decide... I think I'll wake up today. Something has to happen to the dead person to revive him or her. They don't just decide to breathe. They are unresponsive. Verse 1 tells us that before Christ, you and I were unresponsive. We were dead in our sins. We were trapped. And there was nothing we could do to get ourselves out of that in which we were trapped. You and I were dead in sins. But what did that manifest? What did that look like to us in the world? Verses 2 and 3 tell us. Though we were dead, we were, like zombies, walking dead. We were following the world, the flesh, and the devil. Verse 2 says, In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at the work at work in sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Our deadness manifested itself. You were dead to God, but in your sins, you and I walked in sin. It's almost as if an analogy would be that God, Most High, lives in this castle and he, he made the world around him. And rather than enjoy uh, the things that he made and give praise to the one who made it, we decided that we were going to attack the castle in our rebellion against God. And on the way to attack the castle, we became ensnared in our own rebelliousness and our own sins. And so all of those things that we will give an account for Lust, pride, violent thoughts, disobedience to parents, dishonesty, theft, negligence, laziness, blasphemy, unbelief, adultery, idolatry. We can go on and on are all manifestations of a heart that is rebellious against God most high. If you grew up in the 80s and 90s like me and you watched cartoons, there was a threat that when you grew up you realized it wasn't much of a threat, and that's quicksand. For some reason, cartoon characters always got trapped in quicksand, and then we grew up to realize that quicksand really isn't much of a threat. But you were in that quicksand. You were sinking. There's an old hymn that says, I was sinking deep in sin. 
You were sinking down and down, and I was sinking down and down in our sins. And maybe not like reality, but more like the 90s cartoons, there was nothing we could do. Someone had to come and grab us out because we could not swim out ourselves. Now you say, what, what's, the, what's the root? Why, why was I such a sinner? Why am I such a sinner? Is it, is it the world? It's got to be the world because the world tempts me with evil and, and allures me to sin and shows me the, the fruit of sin and how, how satisfying it might be. Maybe it's the devil. The devil made me do it. The evil one. The, the one who attacks our souls. The one who goes after the people of God. It, it must be the devil. Oh, maybe it's our flesh. We're prone to wander. And in our flesh, we are tempted to do all sorts of things that go against the boundaries that God set up. So is it the world? Is it the flesh? Is it the devil? And the answer is, letter D, all of the above. Paul makes that very clear when he says in verse 2, you were following the course of this world. But he goes on to say, you were following the prince of the power of the air. And then in verse 3, he says, you were following the passions of your flesh. You know what that does? It recognizes that the world has fallen. It recognizes that you and I have an enemy of our souls. And it recognizes that we must take personal responsibility for how we react to those things that tempt us. We were, without Christ following the passions of our flesh, influenced by the world, and pursuing the things of the devil. We were dead in our sins. And because of this, brothers and sisters, it goes even worse. We were under God's wrath. Look at verse 3 at the end. It says, And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 2 says, sons of disobedience. Verse 3 says, children of wrath. I know there are many Hallmark cards you can buy that say we're all God's children, but the fact is we are not. Jesus Christ himself even looked the Pharisees in the eye and said, you are of your father, the devil. That's why we must be born again. Because we were not born as children of God. Yes, in some sense, we are his offspring. We are his creation. We are made in his image. But the relationship between us and God has been severed because of our sins. And the Bible says we were under his wrath. As you're going to storm that castle, the king has every right to destroy you. The king has every right to not let you come closer to him and infect his holy presence with your sin and my sin. Jesus, in John 3, verse 36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Listen, we have a problem. I understand that sin ruptures relationships. Sin, sin ruins friendships. Sin, you may even pay consequences physically, financially, of yourself because of sins that we choose to follow. But before we sin against ourselves and before we sin against others, we primarily sin against God. Psalm 51, where David cries out as a result of his sin with Bathsheba, says, against you, Lord, have I sinned. When you lie, yes, you might hurt someone around you. But you are sinning against Almighty God. When you commit idolatry and put things above God, you are sinning against Almighty God. When you commit adultery, whether physically or in your mind, you are sinning with your body against Almighty God who gave you your body. And we can go on and on. Sin is not something to toy around with, brothers and sisters. And before we knew Christ, we were under the wrath of God. And I can't even explain, I can't even begin to explain to you how formidable the wrath of God is. The Bible says our God is a consuming fire. When you think of hell and the eternality of hell, understand that hell is simply an outpouring of the wrath of God. 
That's how serious the wrath of God is. How dare we take God's good creation and the bodies and the minds that he gave us and use it for rebellion against him? And you might say, this is so unfair. Why would God do this? It's because of how sinful we are. We need to be, we need a wake-up call is to realize how much sin is an affront to a beautiful and holy God. In, in There's one evangelism video. I think I know who, who it is, but I won't say because I don't remember. But they talk about how the consequence of the sin rises with the level of the one you sin against. So you sin against a peer. There's a consequence to that. But it's not going to be as great as the sin against a police officer. Or after you sin against a police officer and you wind up in court and then you sin against the judge, it's, there's going to be a greater consequence. And we can go on and on. Well, who's the highest office in the universe but God Almighty? And we did not just sin against Him once. I can't even imagine if God were to record all of our thoughts and put it on a screen like that. How many hundreds of thousands of sins we would have to account for. And because God is just, He will punish sin. Therefore, it is not unjust for us as dead sinners in rebellion against God to be under His wrath. Before we knew Christ, we were dead in sin following the world, flesh and devil, and under the wrath of God. And I really believe it's so important for us to remember that so we could all the more appreciate what God has done for us. Remember, the gospel means good news. If I dismissed you right now, you'd probably walk away and say, that was not good news. That was pretty bad. But it's true. And it's exactly what it is that drives us to know that if I am this helpless, I need a Savior. Look what God did for us. First, God made us alive with Christ. Hallelujah. Verse 5 and 6. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. Notice he doesn't say, after you got yourself revived. But when you were dead, when God passed by and saw you drowned already, made us alive together with Christ. When we were dead. See, God's love for us is not predicated upon something lovely in us. God's love for us is predicated upon his holy character. He is full of mercy and grace and love and kindness. Just like a Romans tells us, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you come into Christianity thinking that you've got to clean yourself up and then God will accept you, you've got the wrong message. You can't clean yourself up. Jeremiah tells us you can take up as much soap as you want. God still sees your iniquity. He's the one who has to move toward you and rescue you and me out of the mire of our sin. God raised us up with Christ, our risen Savior. These are some of the most beautiful words ever written in Scripture. Ephesians 2, 5 and 6. Raised us up, seated us with Him in the heavenly places. This, brothers and sisters, is the gospel. This is the good news. This is, though you were so helpless, God did something for you out of sheer grace and mercy. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, by faith in Christ, we have union with Christ. And that means that in his death, we die to sin. And in his resurrection, we live with him. He truly is a risen Savior. He saw us in our utter helplessness, and not just helplessness, helplessness that he knew we got ourselves into. And rather than say, well, serves you right, he came along and he made us alive. He called us forth out of the grave 
And by faith, we respond and we are made alive with him. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Christ made us alive. Secondly, he saved us by grace. He saved us by grace. Verse 5 says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of God. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. What is grace? We talk about grace a lot. It's a common word in Christianity. Grace simply means undeserved favor. Undeserved. When someone gives you something, even though you got in trouble, but they give you a grace period because you didn't deserve it. You are not a Christian because you deserved it. I am not a Christian because I deserved it. As Paul says, in my flesh dwells no good thing. That's why God's grace is so amazing. There was nothing good in us as we were all dead in sin that God would look around and say, I like that one. I'll I'll pick that one. He gives us salvation by his sheer unmerited favor, grace. Paul here also calls it a gift. It's a gift. How do you receive a gift? There's intentionality in that language. If salvation were something you earned, it wouldn't be a gift. It'd be a reward. If salvation was something you paid for, it wouldn't be a gift. It'd be a wage. But salvation is a gift because God gives it to you by grace. You didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. But he gave it to us because of who he is and because of his purposes. I pray that as our church continues to move on, that we would never forget the grace of God. May the grace that God had on us and continues to have on us always color the grace we have for one another and the grace we have with people outside this church. When you're dealing with hard-to-work-with co-workers, hard-to-live-with family members, hard to abide next to neighbors, but you represent this church that preaches the grace of God, may it be known that we are people of grace because we are recipients of amazing grace. God made us alive. God saved us by grace. And next, God seated us in heavenly places. This is amazing. Here you are trying to storm God's castle with your sin and rebellion. And in the process, you died. If God were not a gracious God, he has every right to look down at those dead carcasses all around the castle grounds and just do away with you and burn the body forever. But because of his mercy, not only does he revive us, not only does he save us, he gives us a place in the castle. He gives us a place in the castle. (laughs) What is that? You tried to attack me. You rebel against me, but I'm going to save you and I'm going to prepare a room for you. And you can sit there. Oh, and by the way, Jesus says to us, whatever you ask my father in my name, he'll give it to you. And he'll call you his child. I mean, is, is there any plan, any insurance plan, any, any deal better than that? People handing out business cards, you need this. That's what, I'm sorry, I'm lost for words. You were dead in rebellion and sin, and God gave you a place in his own presence. Isn't that amazing? He seated us in heavenly places. Now, this is sort of speaking of the already not yet tension. I've used this phrase before. We are people of the future living in the present. 
But God takes rebellious sinners like you and me, and not only does he save, he doesn't just like clean us up and say, now go on your way. He says, welcome home, my child. You know, as human beings who are fallen, we know that our love has limits, right? We're easily irritated, annoyed. We're not as quick to forgive as we can be or should be. If you struggle with that, I would encourage you to think about what God has done. There is no sin that God would say, that guy, her, helpless. I can't do anything about it. Oh, sure, we're helpless. But God helps the helpless. And he doesn't just help the helpless. He redeems them. He makes them new. And he seats them in heavenly places. Whoa. That's huge. Now why? Go to the next slide. Why did God do this? God doesn't need us. God is totally self-sufficient. He doesn't need us. But the Bible continues to tell us in this text why God did this. He did this because of who he is. Who is he? How does Paul identify him? Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. You see Paul's train of thought here? Verses 1 to 3, you were dead, you were a rebel, you were following the course of the world and the devil. But God, because of who he is, who is he? He's a God who is rich in mercy and great in love, gracious and kind, saved our souls by grace. Love that song we sing, our sins they are many, but his mercy is more. The psalmist cries out, his mercy endures forever. His mercy endures forever. There are no limits to his mercy. Just as much as grace is unmerited favor, mercy is God withholding from us the punishment we deserve. We deserve condemnation, but God has mercy and does not give us condemnation. So he can say in Romans 8, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. God never will say to a sinner who comes to him by faith, I'm sorry I ran out of the last dose of mercy. It doesn't exist. He is rich in mercy. He withholds what we deserve. It is his very nature to be merciful. God is not petty or easily irritated. He is not lazy or impatient or stingy. He is overflowing with generous mercy. There's an endless supply of this mercy. And he is great in love. And his love endures forever. Nothing can separate us from this love. 1 John 4, 8 says God is love. So why did God save us rebellious sinners like you and me? Because of who he is. Rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love. God is also gracious and kind to us. And by kind, we don't mean God is nice. He's not just nice. He is kind. That means he is self-giving. God gives of himself the best thing we can have. I shouldn't even say thing, person. The best relationship we can have in this universe is with God himself because in him is wrapped up all the perfections of love and justice and holiness. And he gives himself to us. He is kind. He is gracious. He is loving. Because of who he is, not because of who you are and who I am, but because of who he is, you and I can be saved. And I pray again, as our church continues to move forward with our mission, that we would always present, not only in our songs, but behind this pulpit, but out in the world, a God who is generous in love and in kindness and in mercy. Do not forget how big God's grace and love are. But God did not only do this because of who he is, but for his glory. Verse 7 tells us there's an end goal to this. Why did God save a bunch of rebellious dead sinners? Verse 7, so that in the coming ages, 
he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God is invested in his own glory. And you and I are trophies of his glory. Now, I don't mean to say that to give you a big head. Because it's not about you, it's not about me. It's to show the principalities and the powers. It's to show the whole world how gracious and kind God is by taking the most rebellious sinners and saving their souls. So that as we live lives based upon this wonderful message of the gospel, people will see your life and they will give glory to God. God saved you for his glory. If you've been saved by grace, you are a trophy of God's amazing kindness to you. And this gives us the motivation to live for him. And so what are we now? We consider what we were, dead, rebellious sinners. We consider what God did. God made us alive in Christ. Why God did it, because of who he is and for his glory. And now, what are we? What are we now? Well, we are saved by grace through faith. Verse 8 and 9, some of the most important verses in all the New Testament. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. This is a, a verse that was a catalyst for much of the Reformation's teachings. Because the church had gone so off course that especially in the medieval ages, people thought that you can, in a sense, merit favor with God. That's why the Catholic Church had the treasury of merit that was given to us by Christ and the saints and Mary. And you just put more good works in that treasury and draw from that treasury. And you would merit eternal life. But grace is unmerited favor. You don't merit anything. You don't deserve anything. And this verse, or these two verses, make that clear. It's by grace you have been saved. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works. How could it be any more clear? Do good works save a Christian? Do good works save a sinner? No. Good works do not save. You cannot work your way to heaven. You cannot earn your way to heaven. You cannot make a ladder so big that you will eventually get to God. God must come to us. And that's what he did in Christ. And so what are you and I? We are saved. We are saved. Glory, we are saved. We've been saved. Uh, I think I may have given this before, but just, just to, to get the whole picture here, the three P's of salvation, penalty, power, and presence. You are saved from the penalty of sin. So what we deserved, which was God's wrath, has been absorbed by Christ on the cross. So that rather than wrath, we have God's favor. You've been saved from the penalty of sin. We call this justification. God legally declares that we are righteous, even though we are sinners, because of what Christ did for us. On the cross, Jesus exchanged his righteousness for our unrighteousness. He took your record of sins and bore the penalty in his body, and then gave you and me his perfect record of righteousness. You were saved, past tense, from the penalty of sin. But... As we live this life, we are also, present tense, being saved. We are being saved from the power of sin. We're being saved from the power of sin. Uh, theologians call this sanctification. And that is, in Christ, we are now given all the treasures that we need. We are given the Holy Spirit so that with the word of God and by faith, we can fight sin in our lives and progressively grow into the image of Christ more and more. I don't know if you play Monopoly, but salvation is not a get out of hell free card. You just come to an altar, pray a prayer, got my card, just in case this whole Jesus thing is right. I got my card stamped. I prayed the prayer. I signed the card. I mailed in the track. I sent the TBN preacher something for some holy water. That's not how it works. 
It's not a get out of hell free card. It's not a just in case. Yes, you're saved from hell, but you are progressively being saved by the power of God to look more and more like the one who saved you. Saved from the penalty of sin, being saved from the power of sin. And praise God, one day we will be saved from the presence of sin. We will be saved from the presence of sin. Not in this lifetime. The Apostle John is very clear. If we say we have no sin, we're lying. Even now, as saved believers, every one of us is engulfed in some sin, in our mind, in our heart, things that we are fighting, wrestling with. None of us has attained perfection yet, but praise God, it will come. Not in this lifetime, but one day when we are glorified with Christ, we will be completely free from the presence of sin. We will live in his perfect kingdom wherein dwelleth righteousness forever and ever. We will see him face to face. We will never sin. There will be no more war. There will be no more violence. No more rebellion. It will be perfect. And he will be our God and our light. And we will be his people. We call that glorification. Brothers and sisters, do you realize what God has given you? He has saved you from the penalty of sin. He is saving you from the power of sin. And he will save you from the presence of sin, all by his amazing grace. And how does that apply to you? I think it's important to note this. Verse 8 again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. There is an instrument here. By which God Almighty takes all the things I've been talking about for the last 30 minutes and applies it to you. Because sitting here and just saying, yeah, that sounds good, or I agree with that, is not salvation. You have to apprehend it by faith. You have to believe. You you can believe everything is true. Uh, Theologians call this um, the three aspects of of saving faith. Uh, One is knowledge. You have to have knowledge. So I I might know that this chair that's in front of me is a chair. I know it's a chair. Great. Then assent. Assent means I agree that that chair looks as though if I sit on it, it should support my weight. That's great. But the third aspect of saving faith is trust. And it doesn't become real to me until I rest myself on that chair. Are you resting in Christ? Have you laid down your good works and your feeble attempts to please the king against whom you have been rebelling all your life and said, Lord, I am a sinner, save me. That is how you become a Christian. You cannot earn it. You must believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And right here Paul says you are saved by grace through faith. And I pray that everyone here in this room would be believing on Jesus because that is the only way. There's no other God. There's no other Savior. There's no other way. Faith in Christ alone by the grace of God alone. The last thing Paul tells us then is that we are now new creatures in Christ. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Often in the debates I've seen between um, those who believe you're saved by works and those who are saved by faith or believe you're saved by faith. Um, Verse 10 is often neglected. And I understand we want to focus on verse 8 and 9. Not by works, not by works, not by works. Okay, we got it. But there is works here. There are works here. Grammatically, not sure. Verse 10. We are his workmanship. See, the works become come after. Some say it's the fruit, not the root. You're not saved by works, but now that you're saved, you work. Good works follow. Good works verify that we've been truly saved. You might have agreed with me up to verse 9, but there's no evidence in your life to verify what you say is true. 
And there are things in the Bible that warn us against false converts, wolves in sheep's clothing, people who say, Lord, Lord. And yet they didn't know Christ. God does desire for his people to do good works. Jesus even said, do good works before men to glorify your father in heaven. Let your light shine so that they may glorify your father. But these good works now are not done just out of mere obligation. When you come to Christ, he so changes your heart that you have a new relationship to what God expects of his people. You no longer just do the law just to do the law. You obey God because of the love that you have for him. One of the lies that I think a lot of Christians believe is that I'll never overcome the sin that I struggle with. But verse 10 tells us, you are his workmanship. God is the master crafter. He's crafting you to become more like the image of Christ. He's endowed the Holy Spirit upon your life. He's given you the infallible word. He's given you the resources of his church. We can have victory over sin. But do you believe that? I'll never forget coming here, not here, but to Bread of Life, I think 15 years ago, Pastor Bill, one of the founding pastors of our church, he really drove this point home. It's one of the reasons why I was so thankful to be a part of this church. That just as much as it's faith alone that is the instrument by which God justifies us, it's also faith alone that's the instrument by which God sanctifies us. Oh yes, we can give advice. We can say there's some accountability here, give some steps, give some wisdom. We all need that. But at the end of the day, you will fall flat if you are trusting in yourself to try to conquer sin in your life. You must cling to the same Savior who saved you from your sin. Continue clinging to him. Continue trusting him. Abide in him. What did Jesus say? Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Too many of us see a lack of fruit in our lives. And then so we go to the store and we buy the fruit. And then we take out some duct tape and we tape it to the tree and say, now I've got the fruit. It's going to fall off and rot. The fruit is not artificial. It must come from the root. So when you abide in Christ by faith... By faith, the fruit blossoms, pointing to the one who saved us. For we are his workmanship. I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, God did not just save you and leave you. He saved you and he's conforming you actively to the image of his son. Remember, it said in verse 1 and 2 that we were dead. We used to walk according to the flesh. But now we are being renewed every day. Praise God. We are free. Let me just end one more slide with just brief comments. How does this apply to us today? What can we take home with us? As I said in the beginning, we must keep these truths as of first importance. Number one, remember who you are. Remember what you were, I should say. I don't mean that you live in self-pity. I, I know there's... <laughs> Talk to my kids about certain Christian artists, and there's this one Christian rapper that I, even though he doesn't curse and he says a few things about God once in a while, I said, I don't want you to listen to this guy because even though he says he's a Christian, every single song I hear is about what he used to be. I was this bad, I was this bad. Okay, we get it. <laughs> you were really bad. So I'm not talking about that. I hope you understand. But it is important. To remember how far you've come. Not to glorify anything you've done, but how far down God reached to save you. Pride makes no sense when you realize that you are a sinner saved by grace. How dare we ever, and I speak to myself, how dare we ever look down on other people when we realize how much of a rebel to God we were before he saved us. Our church should be marked by humility because it's filled with people who know that they were once lost sinners, dead in their sin, rebels to God. Secondly, remembering what God has done should inspire joy. 
you know this already, but tough times will come. Tough times will come in your lives. Some of you are going through a tough time right now. There will be times of growth, times of stagnancy. Times where our church seems full, times where our church seems empty. Times where we seem more united, times where we don't see so, seem so united. There will be financial struggles in your life. There will be health struggles in your life. What is it that will bring joy and contentment in the midst of the fleeting winds of this world? Remember the gospel. Nothing changes. If you're going through a, a wonderful time or a time of great discouragement, it's still true that if you're in Christ, you have been saved from the penalty of sin, you're being saved from the power of sin, and you will be saved from the presence of sin, and that doesn't change. Remembering what God has done, how in love He came to you when you were in your most helpless state should inspire joy. That's why we come together. That's why we sing. That's why we can go into our places of work, even tomorrow morning, despite whatever irritants might be present on the job, and have a song in our heart, because God saved us. Thirdly, remembering why God saved us should inspire faith. Remember, God saved you not because of anything in you, but because of who He is. Which means we must not only look to Him for salvation, we must look to Him each and every day by faith. The fact of the matter is we will not have all the answers, but we will have the truth. And the truth is bound up in God himself as a person. We must know him, as Paul said, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. That may inspire faith in us because we walk by faith and not by sight. And finally, remembering who we are now should inspire love and good works. You can have victory over sin. You can grow in patience and love and forgiveness and holiness. Because brothers and sisters, despite what we once were, you are now a new, risen creature, risen with your Savior. Brothers and sisters, I know that much of what I said today is quite elementary. But it's these basic elements that form the foundation for what we do here as a church. As our church continues to grow, as we transition toward independence, as we take time next year to formulate our constitution and mission statement, think about areas where we can improve and grow in new outreaches or things that aren't working. Let us always keep the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ as first importance. May we never give way to the fleeting fads of this world. Never allow theological controversy to dominate what happens here. Never shift our emphasis from where the New Testament places the emphasis. And may we be determined by the grace of God to do everything we do based on this eternal, glorious, beautiful message that our gracious and kind God, who is rich in mercy, saved dead, rebellious sinners like us by raising us in Christ to new life, to the praise of his glorious and amazing grace. Let us pray.